Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. We start with the continuing revelations on the release of the Chinatown stabbing suspect, Blair Evan Donnelly. This is a colossal betrayal of the public trust here. This guy stabs his own daughter to death. They let him out. Stabs another guy. Let him out again. Stabs another guy in the forensic psychiatric hospital in Coquitlam. All this guy does is stab people over and over again. Let him out again. And now accused, of course, of stabbing three people in Chinatown last weekend. We've got the leaked BC Review Board decision. We're going to dig into some of the details of this. I got victims' rights advocate Dave Teixeira standing by to discuss. First, have a listen to Premier David Eby here. I am so angry. I am white-hot angry that this person was released unaccompanied into the community to have a devastating impact. Okay, he's white-hot angry and... I suspect he had received a full briefing on the entire contents of this review board decision. And that's why he was white hot angry, because he wanted to get out in front of this thing. This review board decision was not released by the review board. It was leaked to the media. Let's discuss this case now with my guest, Dave Teixeira. Dave is a victim's rights advocate in British Columbia. I'm very pleased to welcome him back. Hey, Dave, thanks for coming on today. Hey, thanks, Michael, for uh, continuing to talk about this, because this is a pretty important story. Thank you. Absolutely. What jumps out at you here when you take a look at this review board decision seven pages long? I mean, they knew this guy was a ticking time bomb. They let him out anyway. What jumps out at you? But what, what jumps out at me is a few, a few different things. First off, there's enough blame to go around here. The government's at fault, the review board's at fault, and, and, and the hospital's at, at, at fault. But what seems to be the, the thread that binds through at least this seven-page decision is just the lack of responsiveness to just common emails alerting other staff members or doctors of what's going on here. And then furthermore, the the whole seven pages reads like a red letter warning letter, you know, warning letter to the BC Review Board to say, don't let these people out. Yet the Review Board said, well, we'll still give you the the ability to let people out. And they give it to this director. And now we have what, what we saw last weekend. Yeah, when you read through this report, and I encourage everyone to read it and to get a full understanding of of just what a betrayal this is. I'm glad you mentioned some of the conditions at this forensic psychiatric hospital that is detailed in this report, because it goes through things like staff not responding to emails, warning them about this guy's deteriorating behavior. The fact that he was placed in an unstaffed cottage, not supervised on the hospital grounds and deterioration continued. And that was not shared among the professional staff there. Staff shortage and turnover. No sufficient risk management of this guy. Staff not trained properly. 
And this is like a litany of, of problems and dysfunction in this facility. And when, so I, when I listen to David Eby saying he's, re, he's white hot angry about it, this is a provincial hospital. I mean, he should be, he should be angry at himself. The buck's supposed to stop with him, isn't it? Well, again, there's plenty of blame to pass around here. I mean, for 15 yeah. years, I've been involved with representing uh, Darcy Clark and family with the Alan Shornborn case and, and other families as well. And I've had the opportunity to meet with three premiers, seven AGs, including David Eby when he was a premier. So everyone I meet with, I, I truly believe, wants to solve the problem. But there seems to be an ideological block. No one wants to actually force treatment or force changes. I mean, and, and that just doesn't make any sense, Michael, is that we have a problem. Let, let's fix it. It doesn't do those suffering from mental health any uh, uh, any favors by allowing them out in the community before they're 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 ready but yeah they, they, there needs to be changes at the hospital it needs to be changes in the in the sense of government and the review board needs to be reviewed as well let's take another listen to david eby here who has called an independent review of the of this case and here he is uh discussing about how just how shocked he was that this guy was let out again let's listen i cannot fathom how someone who murdered his daughter was released in 2009, went out and stabbed somebody else, would then be released again, unaccompanied, somehow able to go and buy a knife, go to Chinatown and stab three people. How is that possible? Okay, and now we find out there was another stabbing we didn't know about in the, in the facility uh, that was revealed in this leaked document. So, I mean, there's, there's lots of stabbings going on here with this guy. I thought some of the stuff that EB said there Dave, for your thoughts, was kind of weird, like when he said, oh, I don't know how this guy was able to buy a knife. I'm like, well, because your facility let him out without any supervision. So, of course he can buy a knife. Like, anyone can go and buy a knife. What, what is he talking about? I, I didn't understand well, that. Well, I... I, I you know, buying the knife is the least of the problems here. It's acquiring the knife. You could have just grabbed it off of any restaurant patio. I, I don't know what knife was used. You could have shoplifted it. I mean, here, here's the real issue is that there are systemic problems within the system that governments, and this goes back to the BC Liberals slash United and the BC NDP have refused to truly address. There's been minor adjustments. But they can control what goes on with the review board, and the review board can dictate what goes on in the hospital. But everyone's passing the buck, staff shortages, uh, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, you have to remember that the 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 hospital was was hit with a almost six hundred and fifty thousand dollar WorkSafe BC penalty back about four years ago. So there's mismanagement at all levels going on here, and there's not one person to blame. But Holding on to the fact uh, that the knife was acquired or, or anything like that is that they knew that this could happen. This someone with this sort of history, it's not a surprise. What the surprise is, or maybe it's the disappointment, is that yeah. no one has done anything to correct it. Yeah, uh, I mean, I'm just my, my point is I was just shaking my head listening to EB saying he cannot fathom how this guy uh, was somehow able to get a knife. I mean, what do you expect? You let him out without supervision? <laughs> that he's shocked yeah, to get and, a and, knife. Like, I think what? The, the other point you you brought up a couple times here, Michael, is the only yeah. way any of us have seen this report is it was leaked. That's and, right. Uh, you know, I, I was given this report as well. And the person who gave it to me this weekend told me that uh, all the documents have now been locked down. No one, oh. at least at this person's level, can access anything anymore, which is different than other jurisdictions. If you look at the Ontario Review Board, you can go online and search for and, and get yourself 
uh, any of the PDFs for their decisions and their reasons. So BC has decided about 10 years ago to stop that access. And, and that just speaks to the uh, the arrogance of the review board in terms of not wanting to be accountable to us, the great unwashed masses. Yeah, no, I think that's a great point. And we have still not, to my knowledge, heard any kind of on-the-record comment from anyone from this board. I mean, every news operation in the city has been asking for an interview with these people. They, they haven't said anything, correct? That's correct. In fact, yeah. the last time I can see that the BC Review Board chair talked about anything was when he was contemplating suing the BC government for higher pay. So I think we're seeing very clearly where the BC Review Board's uh, preference and uh, focus is. Yeah. Speaking to victims' rights advocate Dave Teixeira, we're talking about the release of the Chinatown stabbing suspect. Why was this guy let out? Let's have another listen to Premier David Eby here promising an independent review of this. Let's listen. We will ensure that an independent person looks into the specifics of this case, the decision-making process, how we arrived at this awful place. Okay, and Eby has now appointed a former police chief to investigate the, the release of, of this suspect from this psychiatric inst institution. Like, uh, how much... How much faith or confidence do you have into getting to the bottom of this? Because, you know, if you go back to the leaked, uh, this leaked report, it says, looking at it right now, the, the review board concluded Donnelly continues to meet the threshold of a significant threat. The board considers the appropriate disposition here is, for the time being, is placement at the psychiatric hospital. So they basically, they basically said keep him locked up, right? Or, or, or does the staff there have the authority to do whatever they want, no matter what this well, board says? Yeah, so there's two parts to any review board process. The, the leaked seven-page reasons is kind of like the minutes of what took place in that hearing. And then there's a single-page a single page uh, document that outlines what the, the, the order. And in the order, they're saying that it, they, they put it to the director. But the BC Review Board has the ability to say, absolutely not. We're not giving anyone the ability to do that, to, to, to let him out is what I'm saying. What they should have probably also done is, is because they heard about uh, emails not being responded to in different issues, what they should have done is probably put a milestone in place and said, come back to us in six months, show us that the communication has improved, show us that there's been advancement in treatment, and then we will relook at this. But instead, they said, come back to us at a future date, but during that time, you make the decision. That's not how the system should be. There should be checks and balances in place, and they just keep passing this buck around. In, in terms of the investigation, Michael, I, I have hope that someone will be able to get to the bottom of this case because it's 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 pretty simple. You just have to pick the phone up and say who made the decision, talk to that person, and away you go. Yeah. What's going to be more difficult is correcting the arrogance of the BC Review Board, uh, fixing the issues of management at the hospital, and the government getting out of their ideological way and realizing that our mental health and criminal justice systems in this province need uh, so, some review and fixing. <laughs> Let's talk now about the epidemic of drug overdose deaths in British Columbia. The number of fatal overdoses continues to rise in B.C. despite the aggressive harm reduction measures brought in by government. Now, that includes decriminalization of drug possession. 2.5 grams is the new legal possession limits in British Columbia for heroin, cocaine, crystal meth, fentanyl. We're the only province in Canada that has done that, by the way. We also have Safe Supply. Now, this is the program where doctors are able to prescribe a so-called safe supply 
of laboratory-tested drugs, notably Dilaudid, also known as hydromorphone. This is the most commonly prescribed safe, safe supply drug. And the idea is if people are dying from a poisoned illegal drug supply on the street and they're going to use anyway, then why do we not, let's give them laboratory-tested so-called safe drugs instead. If they're going to use anyway, then at least they won't die from these drugs. Is this working? Is this the right thing to do? Are there unintended consequences from it? Got Dr. Mark Mallett standing by to discuss. Have first, first, have a listen here. This is Dr. Mark Tyndall. He is a supporter of Safe Supply, My Safe Society. And here he is making the case for the safe supply of these drugs. Have a listen. If you can um, interrupt the, the grind that people go through to get their illegal drugs every day, it changes their lives dramatically. And they can work on, you know, housing and um, social, other social things and their health if they don't have to get up every morning and go and search for illegal drugs. All right, Dr. Mark Tyndall on an earlier show. Let's discuss now with my guest, Dr. Mark Mallett. Mark is a, a Victoria-based doctor and hospitalist, and he's a father of uh, teenage kids. And I highly recommend the op-ed he wrote on this topic in the Globe and Mail recently. It is really, really something. Mark, thank you for coming on today. Hi, happy to be here. Yeah, I appreciate it a lot. And you wrote in the Globe and Mail, and this is what encouraged me to reach out to you as soon as I read this, that when it comes to this, this safe supply program, you describe it as a slow-moving tragedy that's unfolding before our eyes in British Columbia. Let's talk about that. What are your concerns here? Well, I think initially it's, it's very important to differentiate between safe or safer supply in general and then unwitnessed safer supply. Um, the, the difference being that we have had for up to a decade, depending on where you live, access to a safer supply in a witnessed setting. So uh, people who have addictions, who don't get benefit from some of the traditional treatments like like uh, methadone or, or suboxone, can go and have a nurse give them injectable dilaudid or something similar that will get them high in a safe setting. Uh, the drug is provided, so it's different than a safe injection site where you might bring your own drugs. So that that program has been around for a little while, up yeah. to 10 years, depending on where you live. It's the unwitnessed program. So that's the program where they're handing out a handful of pills every day so that someone can go and use these when they want to. And, and that program was rolled out as an emergency measure in March 2020 at the very beginning of COVID when there was this concern that we've got these people who are now reliant on this safe supply and we want them to continue to have a safe, safe supply, but we need them to self-isolate. So they were given, in, in many cases, 14 pills of eight milligrams of Dilaudid to take with them. And so that's really my concern. It's, it's not so much safe supply itself, it's the unwitnessed safe supply where, where these pills are now out in the community and they're completely unaccounted for. They may be used by the person they're intended for, they may be sold, they may be used by another person who's already addicted, or they may be used by someone who's trying a pill for the first time, which is which is really my concern, is that we are creating new users, new addicts, through government-supplied medications that are not intended for that purpose. Yeah, this is really what they, they call like 
has been called diversion, right? Where people who are prescribed this, these medications, these drugs, somehow these drugs are diverted from them and they're, they're sold. Maybe they're sold to young people. And is there, I wonder, is there a temptation maybe among people who are new drug users or inexperienced drug users, Mark, that if they're offered one of these so-called safer supply drugs like Dilaudid, which are known in this, on the street as dillies, that they'll think like, okay, I can safely take this. It's, I'm not going to overdose from this. Is that a problem? I think it is. I, part of my experience with this comes from being a doctor in the hospital and seeing a lot of patients with addictions. And then part of it, as you mentioned, I, I have teenagers myself. I have other friends who have teenagers. Um, I do know someone personally whose teenager has become involved in this. And that was part of their thinking that, oh, this is probably safe. I'll take this instead of you know some other option because this is a, a pharmacy medication it's not going to be laced with fentanyl, so this will be safe. Not realizing, and, and I've spoken to a number of teenagers about this, but almost all of these kids initially have no idea that dillies are, are even opioids. They don't know what they are. They're just a pill at a party, someone's selling them. They don't know that this is a highly addictive, essentially pill version of heroin uh, that is being sold to them. So there is this element of one thinking it may be safe. And two, they're actually incredibly prevalent now because there are so many that have been put out into the community that they're they're very cheap. They're by yeah. far the cheapest drug you could buy at a party if you're looking to buy a pill. They're incredibly cheap. Yeah, and uh, and widely available, it appears. So uh, like how much can you buy? What is the street price of these these dilated pills, these dillies now, and how, how, how easy are they to obtain? Uh, you know, my, so my personal experience with that is speaking to someone here in the hospital who gets prescribed these every day and asking, you know, about diversion and does he sell them? And, and he said, well, I, I do, but it's, it's kind of not even worth my while anymore because they're only 25 to 50 cents a pill. That's all I can get for them. Um, so they're the end user who might buy them, um, you know, may pay more than that, depending on where you're going to get them. If you're going straight down to the the, the place where the the initial user is selling them, you might get them for 50 cents. It, you know, if you buy them yeah. at a high school party, it might, who knows, it, I don't know the price, but it's going to be more than that, but it's still very cheap. The, the other day, uh, 50 cents a pill, boy, that is really, really cheap. And is there also a danger as well? And I've heard this idea brought up that these unscrupulous drug drug dealers will make, who have a pill press and are making these drugs, could make fake dilaudids they could make fake dillies right that look like a dilaudid pill a, a so-called safe supply drug but maybe it's got fentanyl in it and it would look like a safe supply but it's not it is have you heard of that i i haven't heard of that directly i mean i've certainly heard of that in the media i, I think that is a concern you know a lot of what i'm trying to put out there is i i have direct experience with this i've spoken with people with addictions. I've spoken to teenagers um, I, in terms of what a dealer might do creating a, a dilated fake pill. I, it's certainly possible. I don't know directly about that, to be yeah. honest. Speaking of Dr. Mark Mallet, we're talking about safe supply and unwitnessed safe supply. Like I, I had a friend of mine who once, he once worked in a, a methadone clinic years ago, and 
we would talk occasionally about his work, and he would say, you know, someone who was on methadone would come into the clinic to receive the methadone, right? So in the clinic setting, I guess that's what you would call a, a witnessed safe supply, right? Not giving the drugs and, they, yeah. and people take the drugs away. Yeah, and, and methadone is different in that it is not intended to get you high. So methadone is a, an opioid, uh, is a very long-acting opioid that you take once a day that stabilizes a person so they're, they don't go through withdrawal, but they're also not getting high. They don't show up at the clinic, get their methadone, and, and get the same rush that you would if you took a dilaudid. So it's a, it, it is witnessed ingestion for sure, and that has been around for a long time. Daily witnessed ingestion has been a very common part of managing opioid use disorder for, right. for quite a long time. Um, the, the safe supply or safer supply is for people who are actually wanting to get high as opposed to just wanting to stabilize. So that's providing someone with a drug that will get them high, and that, again, would right. typically be dilaudid in a lot of cases. What, what but are... the daily witness witness use is in, has been around for a long time it's true yeah. what are you seeing out there you touched on this briefly that you know and you and you write about this incredibly powerfully in the globe and mail op-ed that you wrote like what are you seeing in terms of the unintended consequences here or the diversion of these drugs like you've you've talked to parents whose kids have been taking these drugs is that right that's correct i have a friend uh, who has a, a i don't want to get too much into the details but um a, a, a daughter who has become addicted to dilaudid and a number of friends also in that circle have become addicted because they tried one at a party. It was, it was fine. It made them feel good. They're really easy to find. They're very cheap. They started using more of them without really knowing what they were doing. And, and by the time they realized uh, they had an addiction and then, you know, now they're trying to manage an addiction. So yeah. they're either, they're, they're going on one of them's on, on Suboxone um, but anyway, it, it was an addiction that directly started from these dillies that are around high school parties. And, and that, unfortunately, you know, we're, we're not the, the problem, I think, with the program is that the, the idea was if any of these drugs are diverted or sold to a, a, an unintended user, that they would end up in the hands of someone who already had an addiction. That was the, the underlying assumption with this program when it started. But unfortunately, it it has spread beyond that and it is creating new users. I don't think anyone can deny that the, the high schools, they are far more um, able to get their hands on dilaudid than they ever were before. And, it, and the new user issue is the problem that yeah. safer supply or safe supply, I agree, can, can be helpful for the person who's receiving it. But if we're at the same time creating new addictions through this program, uh, then overall the program has to be rethought that it, we can't continue doing this if it's actually creating new users, which it clearly is. How many of these d dilly pills, dilaudid pills have, are out there? Like when we take a look at the scale of this program, the number of people have received these prescriptions and the number, number of pills that are typically given out. Do we have any idea how many of these pills have, have, have been issued? Uh, the official numbers are hard to come by, but I, I, do know that statistics are, are put out monthly about how many people are on safer supply. Uh, currently in British Columbia, it's about 4,500, varies a little bit month to month. Um, most of those people, again, statistics are a bit hard to come by, but the last time statistics were available, about 89% of those people were on dilaudid. 
most of those people who are on Dilaudid are probably getting 14 pills a day because that's the normal quantity. So we're, you know, I, in my article, I, I kind of did some back of the napkin math and, and you're looking at tens of thousands of pills a day. So, you know, anywhere up to 50,000, maybe it's not that high, maybe it's 20,000, but this is just in British Columbia every single day. That is the number of eight milligram Dilaudid pills being handed out. Tens of thousands of pills per day per day exactly per day yeah. right right and do the authority like the health authority or the health ministry or the government do they track where these pills end up is it possible to track that if you're allowed to take the pills away i mean do we even know if they're being diverted for sure that is a good question um yeah. you know that is that is my main question and i i have spoken to some people in leadership in addictions medicine uh who generally prefer to remain anonymous because it's such a controversial issue but uh they have told me that no we're not tracking that that there are some studies into is the program providing benefit to the people who are the intended users but there's no one tracking where these diverted pills are going and how many are being diverted it would be incredibly hard to track you're you're sure, essentially handing out a handful of pills and someone leaves and you know how do you track where yeah. it goes it would be very difficult and yeah. and we are as far as i know and from what i've heard from the people i've spoken to no one has been tracking this and this has been over three years now um so i would like to see some data if we have been tracking it because i i have heard I have heard people on the news saying, of course, we're tracking this very closely, mm. but I, I don't actually think that's happening. And from what I have heard, it's not happening. Dr. Mallet, thank you for your time today. I think you're raising a lot of really important points, and I appreciate it. Okay, thank you very much. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. All right, let's talk about the cost of living in this city now in Vancouver and beyond. All of Metro Vancouver super expensive it used to be you move out to the suburbs or the valley and it was a lot cheaper not anymore especially for young people trying to make ends meet here pay just for the necessities okay so rent food gasoline let's speak to one young person now sam bates sam lives with her partner in langley sam is very popular on social media i especially recommend her tiktok videos where she's been talking about the cost of living in Metro. Sam, thank you for coming on this morning. Yeah, no problem. Okay, Sam, you used to live in Vancouver, right? But you moved out to Langley. Tell me about that. Did Vancouver become too expensive for you? Yeah, yeah. Vancouver, the cost has gone up so much um, over 
the past 10 years. I moved here in 2013, and um, I was living in a two-bedroom apartment uh, for, oh, I think like $1,300 a month in Vancouver. And, um, you know, we eventually moved out to Langley. Um, the building was kind of falling apart, and we needed to move somewhere a bit safer. Um, it was one of those old kind of walk-ups where there was really not any maintenance or repairs being done on them. Uh, of course, after we moved out, they did raise the rent for the next tenants to like $2,000 or something, and that was in 2021. Um, and now in Langley, it's like even if we wanted to move back to Vancouver, we definitely couldn't. Yeah. Yeah, you couldn't afford it. How much are you paying in rent in Langley? In Langley, uh, we're paying $3,300 for rent for a three-bedroom townhouse. Oh, $3,300 a, a month. Wow. So that is yeah, almost um, 40000 a year just in rent. <laughs> that's, that's pretty brutal. How does that make you feel? Uh, I mean, we're really lucky that we're able to afford it. it and we're, you know, two, like we make decent salaries. We don't have children. Um, so that's... I can only imagine how much more difficult it is for families um, and people who need more space. And we actually got a deal on this place. When I looked at similar townhouses in the area, they were going for like thirty-five, thirty-six hundred. Wow. Okay. So thirty-three hundred bucks a month is a bargain here with with rent skyrocketing the way they are. And are your utilities on top of that? Uh, yeah, we have to pay utilities on top of that. Wow. How much does that run you? Um, well, we just moved in at the end of July, so we haven't gotten our first DC yeah. hydro bill or anything yet. But I mean, internet's like $100 and then you've got gas. And, you know, it really adds up. Oh, for sure. And you, you, uh, yeah, gasoline. So you need a car for your job then? Yeah, I work a higher job, so I am going into the office a couple days a week. My partner works full time from home, so we're actually kind of in the process of selling her car. Um, so that, you know, we, that's another car payment we don't need to be making yeah. if, since she's at home every day, but, uh, I do have to drive to the office a couple days a week. Thankfully, I'm able to work from home a few days, two to three days a week. And that cuts on commuting and gas and all that. Okay. You did one TikTok video that I thought was awesome. And you, you talked about when you speak to your coworkers, uh, some of them a, a little older than you, and you tell them how much you pay for rent. Tell me at thirty three hundred bucks a month in rent. Tell me about their reaction because they they a lot of them are surprised at that, right? Oh, they were shocked. Um, one of my coworkers, she bought her house I, over ten years ago, I think, in in Surrey, kind of in Newton Wally area, and it's like three thousand square feet. It's huge, gigantic backyard, and she pays twenty four hundred for her mortgage, and she couldn't believe that I'm in less than half the space, um, further out into the valley, and pay way more than her yeah wow yeah this is so and tough actually for... i yeah i, ahead, I actually have a co-worker that i she lives in the same complex that i live in she bought her townhouse um when it was being built in 2017 and like i think she said her mortgage was around like you know 22 2300 around oh. there as well um and that's in the exact same complex that i'm living in oh man Oh man, this is so tough for people for sure. And you did another video I enjoyed where you you talked about how when at one point you used to live in Vancouver and you were a renter in Vancouver and this is back when you were making you were making minimum wage, you're working a minimum wage job and it almost felt like you were better off. 
making minimum wage 10 years ago. Tell me about that. Yeah, you know, I was I, I track my budget very meticulously on my you know, spreadsheet. And when I look at the money that I was bringing in and how far it went 10 years ago, yeah. like compared to today, and I mean, of course, I know that I have different expenses now. You know, I graduated, I have to pay a student loan. I didn't need a car back then, but I do now. So now I have a car payment. And some people like to say, oh, that's lifestyle creep. You don't need to be doing those things. But the reality is if you are leaving the city, you're living out in Langley, you really do need a car. You need transportation. And even now car prices, like a used car, my girlfriend's trying to sell her car that she bought three years ago, and it's worth more now than she paid for it. Mm. So how much, okay, so when you were making minimum wage 10 years ago, like how much were you paying in rent back then? Um. I lived in one two bedroom at one point for seven hundred and fifty or seven hundred dollars a month. Yeah. Um. So you know, in in half, I split that in half, and then I moved into a one bedroom in New West in I think twenty fourteen, and the rent for that was like six hundred and fifty dollars a month for a one. Wow. And then it was still affordable. Like I could afford to pay that on the minimum wage. I was a student. So it felt it almost felt like you had like more money left over. You had more disposable income back ten years ago when you're p- making minimum wage. For sure. I mean, yeah. even like you know, I was able to go out like going out for ten years ago. You know, you could do that for like twenty dollars, <laughs> and now yeah. you're paying twenty dollars just for like an appetizer sometimes, depending on where you. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you, yeah. Forget about going out for for meals now. Speaking to Sam Bates, we're talking about the cost of living in this city, especially for for young people. What is the plan here, Sam? For you and your partner, would, would you guys would you guys like to buy a home at some point? Is that the plan or the dream right now? Um, at this point, it we, we we thought maybe a year ago it could happen, but right now with interest rates, we really don't see it happening anytime in the next five years. Um, I mean, being able to even say, save for a down payment when you are paying $3,300 a month for rent is quite difficult. We kind of joke that, uh, you know, whenever her parents pass away and leave her her inheritance, then maybe. But, of course, like, you know, she doesn't want that because we don't want her parents to pass away. No, <laughs> no. <laughs> no, but it, it's so it's so difficult for a lot of people. It's this is a dream that is just it's not attainable anymore. Like it's not a, it's not a reality. Have, did you grow up in Vancouver? Is this where, is that where you're from? No, I actually grew up in Nova Scotia and I lived oh. in New Brunswick for a bit. I, I uh, moved here in 2013 for school. And so I actually was always considering maybe I'll go back East if it ever becomes too unaffordable in the Vancouver area, but they actually have a major housing crisis there as well because all the people from Vancouver and Ontario moved to Nova Scotia during the pandemic and they've effectively priced out all of the locals. They've raised their housing costs so much, which is also why like saying just move doesn't really work because you're just displacing everyone to another place and you're just pricing out anyone who already lives there. Yeah, because that's the, that's what I was wondering about because you often hear this a lot. You know, it, people will say, well, why don't you just move? You know, why don't you move, you move back to Nova Scotia or move to Alberta? Like, is that something you would ever consider or you, you want to stay here, I presume? Yeah, I mean, we would definitely consider it. Um, I mean, I used to think 
Nova Scotia or New Brunswick would be the place I would go back to if I had to. But I mean, I actually, I made a video on this exact topic on TikTok and all these people from New Brunswick and Nova Scotia were commenting saying, don't move here. Like you're yeah. already ruining our housing like cost out here. Um, and even like a one bedroom in Halifax is like over $2,000 a month now. It's really quickly catching up to be exactly what's happening in Vancouver. Yeah. What are your friends, when you speak to your friends about this stuff, are your friends, a lot of them in the same situation? They're experiencing the sort of same stresses? Um, yeah, pretty much anyone who didn't buy a house yeah. prior to maybe three or four years ago, they've kind of already just accepted that they probably won't ever be able to buy a house unless, you know, their parents help them out. And that's really anyone my age who's buying a house or a condo now, it's because they have help from their parents. And I mean, I know there are exceptions to that, but the majority of people that I speak to my age, they're only buying because they have help from their family. Sam, thank you for coming on to talk about this today. I know there's a lot of people in the same situation. I appreciate it a lot. Yeah, no problem. All right, let's talk about Canada's food fight now. The price of food has galloped ahead of the overall inflation rate in Canada over the past year. Everybody gets the sticker shock here now at the grocery store. Just brutal. When you uh, hit that express checkout lane, you've got one bag of groceries. They tell you it's going to be $80. Are you kidding me? I've only got, got a dozen items here. Everybody's experienced this now. The price of food, so high. Got Franco Terrazano standing by to discuss. Now, this is going on in Ottawa today. The CEOs of Canada's big grocery store conglomerates and food chains have been summoned to Ottawa. And they are meeting with federal officials today and being told, bring your prices down or else. Justin Trudeau threatening punitive taxes on the food industry here if prices do not come down. Have a listen to Trudeau speaking last week. It's not okay that our biggest grocery stores are making record profits while Canadians are struggling to put food on the table. So Minister Champagne will be calling on the heads of large grocers to come to Ottawa with a plan to address the rising cost of food. And we expect to hear from them by Thanksgiving on what their plan is to stabilize prices. Yeah, okay. So by the time you're carving into that Thanksgiving turkey, there better be a plan to bring these prices down at your grocery store. Or Trudeau says he's going to carve up these grocery store CEOs and slap them with an excess Profits tax, it appears here. Franco Terrazano is my guest, Federal Director, Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Franco, thanks for coming on today. Thanks for having me on, Mike. Yeah, I appreciate it a lot. I don't think anyone can deny that the price of food here is ridiculous. I mean, you you see it too, right? But you get the sticker shock at the grocery store too, right? Oh, sure do. It's crazy. Yeah. Uh, I mean, here's the problem, though. A new tax isn't going to make cereal more affordable. It's not going to bring down the price of hamburger meat, and it's sure not going to do anything to make a jug of milk more affordable. I mean, this new tax is going to be passed on to the consumer and higher prices every time we go to the till. So if Trudeau really wanted to make life more affordable, including our experience every time we head down to a Loblaws or Sobeys or Superstore or Independent or whatever, then he would actually reduce or cut his carbon tax. We've been calling on him to scrap his carbon tax for years now. 
because when it's carbon taxed, it makes it more expensive for farmers to dry grain with propane or natural gas. And when his carbon tax makes it more expensive for truckers to fill up their big rig with diesel, well, then his carbon tax makes it more expensive for you, me, and every one of our, your listeners uh, to buy wow. groceries at the store. Okay, the grocery store CEOs are in Ottawa right now as we speak, and this meeting has been set up with the federal industry minister, Francois-Philippe Champagne, and you heard Trudeau mention him. What can the government do here? Like, can they really, I mean, obviously they have the authority to call these CEOs on the carpet and shoo them out, but they can't, can they, or they can't order these stores to lower their prices, can they? Well, I sure hope that they do not put in price <laughs> controls. If the price government control, really yeah. wanted to reduce, well, I sure hope that's not what they're going to be talking about, right? I mean, yeah. Trudeau said that all measures uh, could be on the table here, including tax measures. Well, is it going to be a grocery tax? That's going to increase the cost of food. What Trudeau can do is control how much he's taxing, right? Mm -hmm. He can control how much he's taxing, and he's taxing a lot. You've got the carbon tax. You've got the GST that's applied on top of the fuel taxes that you're already paying. So if Trudeau wants to lower grocery prices, he can do that with a snap of the finger by scrapping his carbon tax. Now, here's the problem. I've been calling this political theater today, but it's actually not just political theater. It's worse than political theater because people at the end of the day could end up being really made worse off here if he does go forward with this grocery tax. Now, Trudeau okay. is going to say, hey, look, we're going after these greedy grocers. But at the end right. of the day, it's not about them. It's about how much we pay at the store. OK, let's listen to precisely what Trudeau had to say here about the potential for some sort of a a tax hammer here to be dropped down on these grocery store chains. Let's listen. Let me be very clear. If their plan doesn't provide real relief for the middle class and people working hard to join it, then we will take further action and we are not ruling anything out, including tax measures. Okay, so we're not ruling anything out, including taxes. I'm, I'm trying to figure this out here now. So if you're trying to convince them to lower their prices, now you're going to hit them with a, a tax that I, presumably raises their input costs even more. How, like, how do you structure this? How do you prevent that tax from being just passed on to in the form of even higher prices? How is this going to work? Franco, your thoughts? You can't. You, you can't. The government can't ensure that the tax won't be passed on to consumers. The tax will be, at least in part, passed on to consumers. And, and this is why I keep saying, look, I'm not going to you know, lose a second of sleep over a CEO who owns a grocery store. That's not who, who we should be losing sleep over. We should be losing sleep over the fact that if this tax were to go through, there is no way that the government can ensure that the tax isn't passed on to the consumer. So if this tax were to take place, it would cost you more every time you go pick up produce or any time you go pick up any other stuff that you want to get from the store, whether it's the jug of milk or hamburger meat as well. There's no way that the government can ensure that the tax doesn't get passed on. That's exactly what would happen. Okay, is there any dispute over the profits that these grocery stores are making now? I mean, it's widely reported that these big grocery store chains are raking in record profits. So taking a look at one recent report says last year, Canada's three largest grocery store chains, Loblaws, Sobeys, and Metro, collectively reported more than $100 billion in sales and earned more than $3.6 billion in profits last year. Are, are you concerned 
with that, I mean, is there any evidence that there's any kind of collusion going on here or we need more competition? What do you think of that prof- that profit that they're raking in? Well, Michael, let me just be honest with you. I, I don't know. I, I really don't know if, if the competition is, is an issue, if it's not an issue. I only do know uh, what I can say, and it's that a tax isn't going to fix this. It's not. A tax isn't going to address the profit. A tax is going to increase prices. Um, now, as the taxpayer representative, I mean, we have been all over the government giving Loblaws 12 million bucks to buy refrigerators. What was that back in 2019? Yeah, um, yeah. The government continues to hand out buckets of cash to big corporations. So you asked me about profits. I, I honestly don't know. I'm not a, a competition watchdog. I can't say. What I can say is that the government really want it, wants to stick it to these CEOs. Uh, just yeah. stop giving some corporate welfare. Franco, thank you for coming on with your thoughts on it today. Hey, thanks for having me on, Mike. Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop. Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.